This particular week, I was reading about a woman in uh, Clover, South Carolina. Never heard of Clover, South Carolina, but I guess it's near North Carolina. And this particular woman, they don't know her motive, but she wanted her husband dead. And so what she did was she took Visine drops and she placed them in his water on a regular basis. And eventually he went into cardiac arrest and he died. Well, you and I know that there are certain things that you can't mix together because they are deadly. And that's true in the spiritual realm. You cannot mix faith and works to produce salvation because it does it. In fact, when you try to earn your way to heaven by believing in Jesus and doing good works, that's a deadly combination. And that's what we've been looking at in Galatians chapter 3. So I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. For those of you who are visiting, we welcome you to Calvary Chapel this morning. And one of the things we do here at this church is we go through books of the Bible and we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3. Now this chapter, I admit, is probably the most difficult chapter in the book of Galatians because it's highly doctrinal. It is practical in some senses, but it's highly doctrinal. And Paul uses well-crafted arguments in this chapter and so this morning, I'm going to try to break it down for you <clears throat> very simply in terms of what his arguments are for faith alone. And remember what I've said in weeks past, Paul went to Galatia and he planted churches there and he taught the organic gospel that you're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, no additives, no preservatives. All you got to do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and the Bible says you're born again. Well, these Judaizers came behind Paul, they were false teachers, and they basically said, faith in Jesus is good, but it's not enough. They didn't reject Jesus, but they said he wasn't sufficient. You have to keep the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey the feasts and the festivals. And so what they were doing is they were corrupting the pure gospel. They were adding faith to works. And basically what they were saying is, if you really want to be a true child of Abraham, and remember, these Judaizers were talking to Gentiles in Galatia, and they were telling the Gentiles there in Galatia, if you really want to be a child of Abraham, you've got to be circumcised. And Paul throughout this book says, no, true children of Abraham, even if you're not a Jew by ethnicity, he says, true children of Abraham are those who have faith alone in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with circumcision. And so Paul throughout this book is going to argue that we're saved by faith alone and not good works. Now, this raises an interesting controversy, and I want to bring this out before we actually get into the text, and that is this. Doesn't the Bible say we must repent in order to be saved? And so, do we have to believe to be saved, or do we have to repent to be saved? Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at the verses up here. You'll notice in Acts 17.30, Paul is preaching, and he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. He doesn't use the word believe there. And then Jesus, right before he goes back to heaven, he gives the marching orders to the church, and he told them, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And look what he says, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So the Bible clearly says in order to be forgiven, you got to repent. But notice these verses right here. The Bible also says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what? What's that word? Believes. Acts 16, 31, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So here's the question, which one is it? Do we have to repent or do we have to believe to be saved? In Galatia, Paul says it's faith alone. These other verses say you got to repent in order to be saved. Which one is it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question this morning because it's very easily solvable. If you'll notice this picture up on the screen, repenting and believing are two sides of the same coin. You see, repentance includes believing. So when you tell a person to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, what you're basically doing is you're saying inherent within the word believe is repent. In other words, I got to change my mind about sin, and then I got to believe in Jesus Christ. It's two sides of the same coin. For example, we see this verse right here in Acts 20.21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God. What's that first word? Repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, both concepts are used when it comes to saving faith. So when you share your faith with other people, what you're basically telling them is in order to become a Christian, you must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Those are not two separate acts. They're the same act. It's two sides of the same coin. So I want to clear that up because some of you may read your Bible and go, are there two ways of salvation being taught? And the answer is no. Paul clearly teaches it's faith alone, and that includes repentance. Now, as we get into chapter 3, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's giving several arguments to the Galatians as to why faith alone is the true way for salvation. As I mentioned to you earlier, this is such a critical, important, foundational doctrine to understand because, as I've said, you can get a lot of doctrines wrong. But when it comes to how a person is born again, you cannot get that doctrine wrong. Because if you tell somebody, here's how you need to be saved, and it's not the correct way, what you're doing is you're leading that person into eternal perdition. And again, I did not set the terms. If we believe Jesus is the Son of God, we believe He is who He claimed to be, He's the one, along with His apostles, His representatives, who gave us the New Testament, and they are the ones that define for us how a person is saved. And so in Galatians chapter 3, he's giving several arguments. Let's look at the ones we looked at last week real briefly, and then we'll pick up this morning where we're at. First of all, Paul argues that faith alone produces the ministries of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last week, and basically what he said to them was, it wasn't the law that produced the ministries of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you, the Holy Spirit matures you, and the Holy Spirit basically produces miracles. And he said, how did all of those things happen? He said it happened by faith alone, not because you kept the Mosaic law. Secondly, I noted for you last time that faith alone is rooted in the Old Testament. Paul uses this argument, and what he does is he basically quotes two verses from the Old Testament to show that faith alone for salvation is not in the New Testament only. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and what he does here is he quotes Genesis 15, 6. And he uses Abraham as the example because Abraham was very revered among the Jewish people. And he says, if you want to know the way of salvation, go back to the Old Testament and look at our forefather, Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He quotes Genesis 15, 6. And then he also quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. And Habakkuk there says, the just shall live by faith. 
And so Paul basically says, salvation has always been the same, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament, it is simply by faith alone, and he uses Abraham as the argument. Thirdly, I noted for you last time that faith alone delivers us from the condemnation of the law. Now remember, the Judaizers were saying that it's the law that saves you. Faith alone is good, but it's not enough. You've got to keep the law. And Paul says, no. If you try to keep the law, if you try to keep the Ten Commandments, if you try to be a good person in order to get to heaven, Paul says you're obligated to keep the whole law. And if you violate the law at one point, James says you're guilty of breaking it all. And so he says the purpose of the law is not to save you. The purpose of the law, it's like a mirror. It exposes your sin, and the law's purpose is to condemn you. Ultimately, you and I look at the law and we go, oh, man, I've committed adultery in my mind. Oh, I've lied. Oh, I've disobeyed my parents. Oh, I've said things out of my mouth that I shouldn't say. We could go on and on and on, and ultimately, what do we do? We, we say, Lord, I can't keep the law. It's impossible. And what that does is it drives you to your knees to where you say, God, have mercy on me through Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of the law, as he says, is to expose our sin, to drive us to Christ, because he said in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, because the law produces a curse. And Christ came along and he made that payment and he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? Because the law says, if you don't keep me perfectly, there's a penalty. The penalty is death. Jesus bore our penalty for us. And if we simply trust in him, what God does is he delivers us. I remember years ago when I was living in South Carolina, I got a call from my mom and she said, Micah, I got some ticket in the mail. It was back in 1991. This was like 2003. She says, I got a ticket in the mail and it's saying that you owe $120. I said, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, it says here that you violated the law. It was some type of speeding thing or I didn't have my seatbelt on. And then I began to think back and I said, wait a minute. I remember that. I showed up to court. The cop didn't show up and it was thrown out. She said, well, it says here that you owe the $120. So I said, let me get back with you. So I called the lawyer. He said, they do this all the time. It's a scam. What they do is they try to get your money. So I couldn't get out of it. He says, you're better off paying the ticket. So I called my mom and I said, you know, I'm stuck paying this bill. And my mom said, you know what, Mike, even though you via the law, she says, I'll go ahead and take care of the ticket for you. I said, great mom. <laughs> you see, my mom didn't violate the law. I did. But you know what she did? She picked up the tab on my behalf. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He paid our penalty for us. And so Paul says, the purpose of the law, unlike what the Judaizers are saying, it's not to deliver us, it's to condemn us and drive us to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, there's a fourth thing, and this is where we pick up this morning in terms of the argument of why we're saved by faith alone and not good works, and that is faith alone is based on God's eternal promise. It's based on God's eternal promise. Now, this argument gets very technical, but Paul is logical in what he's going to argue here, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain it through a diagram. The diagram will help you understand the argument of the Judaizers and then the argument of Paul. The Judaizers were arguing that the way of salvation had changed. They said, yes, we agree with you, Paul, that we're saved by faith alone. You see, God made a promise to Abraham down here. And he promised Abraham that he would have many descendants, he would have a land, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And Abraham believed God's promise, and Abraham was saved. They'll go, okay, Paul, we agree with you. However, 430 years later, God gave Moses the law. He gave the Mosaic Covenant. And so the law was added. And so what they try to argue is God's way of salvation had changed because the law came 430 years later. And so what they basically said is that God has added a new way to be saved now. He originally said to Abraham, you're saved by faith. But when the law came 430 years later, they said God changed his way of salvation. And so here's what Paul argues. And then we're going to read the verse and you'll understand it better. Next slide. Paul argues, no. He says, this promise that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, it was an eternal promise. It cannot be changed. And the reason why it's an eternal promise is because it ultimately was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this Abrahamic promise. And so this promise is eternal. It cannot be revoked. On the other hand, he says when God gave Moses the law 430 years later, that law was only for a time and it was temporary. It wasn't intended to be permanent. So with that background in mind, let's read the verse now and you'll understand better his argument here that faith alone is based on God's eternal promise. It's not based on the temporary law. Notice, if you will, verse 15 up on the screen. He says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. I'm going to use a human illustration now. Even though it is only a man's covenant, when people make covenants with each other, Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Paul says, let me use a human illustration here. In the human realm, whenever there's an agreement, a will, or a contract that's made between two parties, you can't just walk away from that contract once the contract is ratified. I remember last year I decided to trade in my truck and get a new one. I wanted a Chevy Colorado, and I went in, I got the truck, and about two days later I'm hearing this weird noise out of the truck, and I said, nah, this isn't happening. So I went to the dealership, and I said, look, I just bought this new truck. I'm financing it. I said, I'm starting to hear noise. He says, well, we'll, we'll put it in the shop for you. I said, how about this? How about you're not going to put it in the shop, and you're going to get me a new truck? I said, because I just bought the truck two days ago. He said, all right, we never made the deal. It never went through to the bank, so we're going to tear it up. I said, great. And so what happened was I got another truck, and that one went through to the bank, and that was an agreement. Now, if something I didn't like about this truck, what would happen if I went in several months later and I said, hey, look, I don't like this truck. I want to get another one. What do you think they'd say to me? You ain't getting nothing. You're going to put it in the shop because we have an agreement. And Paul says, look, once an agreement is made, once a contract is made, even on a human level, you cannot revoke it. And so he's going to apply that now to the Abrahamic covenant. Notice what he says here. He says in verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. When God made that promise to Abraham, it wasn't just to Abraham, but it was to his descendants. But notice what he says here. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, 
That is Christ. In other words, when God made this covenant with Abraham that he would give him a great nation, he would give him a son, even though he was beyond the age of childbearing, on and on and on, that fulfillment of that promise not only included all of his descendants, the Jewish people, but ultimately it was fulfilled in one seed, and that was in Jesus Christ, and that's why the Abrahamic covenant is eternal, because Christ is eternal. Christ continues to save people today. And so he's saying, look, it's an eternal covenant. And then he's going to qualify what he's going to say in verse 17. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Just because the Mosaic covenant came 430 years later and God made a covenant with Moses, that doesn't invalidate the covenant God made with Abraham because the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant and the Mosaic covenant is a temporary covenant. Because look what he says in verse 18. For if the inheritance, what was promised to Abraham, is based on keeping the law, keeping the commandments, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. When God made that covenant with Abraham, it was an eternal covenant. God made a promise to Abraham. He's not going to revoke that promise. Why? Because when the Mosaic Covenant came later, it's not going to take away from the covenant previously made to Abraham because God gave it to Abraham on the basis of a promise. And you and I know God doesn't revoke his promise. And so naturally, verse 19, someone's going to say, all right, Paul, why did God bring the law? The law then was added because of what? Transgressions. So let me go back to the diagram. Now that we've read it, you'll get a, another perspective here. In the diagram, here's his argument again. He's saying this promise that God made to Abraham is an eternal promise. When God gave it to Abraham, Abraham simply believed it, and God justified Abraham by faith. This promise is eternal because ultimately it finds its fulfillment in the seed of Jesus Christ. He's saying the law was added 430 years later. It was temporary. It was never intended to be permanent, and it was never intended to replace this covenant. It was only temporary. So what he's saying to the Judaizers is, look, you're wrong. The Mosaic covenant is temporary. God never intended the law to save you. God intended the law to expose your sin, condemn you, and show you your need for a Savior. And so Paul basically is undercutting in a well-thought-out argument here these Judaizers, and he's saying, look, the Mosaic Covenant does not do away with the Abrahamic Covenant, and the Abrahamic Covenant was by what? Faith alone. The Mosaic Covenant was based on obedience. God said, here's what I'll do if you do this. You see, it was a conditional covenant, the, the Mosaic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant, on the other hand, was by faith alone. Now, what does this tell us? God's promise today is still the same. You see, faith alone is based on God's eternal promise. What is God's promise to us today? If you believe in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sin, God will forgive you of all your sins. You see, that's the promise of God today. And listen, that promise cannot be revoked because it's an eternal promise and it's rooted in the Abrahamic covenant because Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And so God still makes the same promise today. When we go out and we preach the gospel, yesterday we went to the coin laundry, we did our coin laundry outreach. 
We went, we probably shared in one of the laundromats with about 10 people. We gave them the message of salvation. And ultimately, when we share with people, we say, look, God's promise is, is if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. This came home to me recently. I read an article on Fox News, and it had to do with this well-known, notorious gang leader in Miami. And it says that he came to faith in Jesus Christ. You'll notice his picture here. His name is Level, Rene Level Martinez. He was given the name Level. He was a real bad dude in Miami. He was a part of a gang that had about 300 people, and they terrorized parts of Miami. I'm familiar with some of the places, although I didn't live in those areas. And so I read this article on Fox News that he was raised by a single mother. His mother went off into partying, and um, she did a lot of bad things. They actually inducted him into Santeria. Santeria is part of the Catholic faith, and it mixes voodooism with Catholicism. And so as I read the article, how he got converted, I said, I need to get a hold of this guy. So I got on the phone, and I called him, and he called me back. And I said, hey, Renee, how you doing, man? I said, I'm Mike. I'm from Miami. So we got into this hour conversation on the phone, and he told me his testimony of how he was put in a bathtub, and they sliced the throat of a goat, and they poured blood all over him. He said, Mike, from that point on, he said, demons came into my life. He said, I saw them in my house all the time. And he said, I took a destructive path. And without boring you with all the details, his mother eventually got converted. And he said, I was sitting in a studio producing this rap music. He said it was demonic. And he said, I felt death come over me. And he said, at that moment, he said, look, I don't know if it was audible or not. But he said, God spoke to me and said, I have spared you up to this point because all of his friends had died. They'd all been gunned down. He says, I have spared you for this moment, and if you don't accept me now, I'm going to take off my hedge of protection. And he said right there, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. He got baptized, and God changed his life radically. And so I got to talking to him. You know, his, some of his doctrines off on some issues, and so I'm going to be going to Miami this year, and we're going to actually do some street preaching in Miami. And I even said to him, I said, now, am I going to be safe with you when I go? And he was like, uh, he's like, as long as you're with me, he says, you're fine. He goes, I'm still well known there. He says, but we'll go out and we'll do some preaching. And I'm also going to try to sit down. But see, God's promise was for Rene Martinez. It's for you. It's for everybody else. If you embrace Jesus Christ, you will be what? Saved. You see, that's the Abrahamic covenant. It's eternal. The Mosaic covenant is temporal. But this raises a question. If Paul says, go back to that uh, diagram, uh, Noah. If Paul says the law is temporary and we're no longer under the Mosaic law, that raises a question, do I still have to keep the Old Testament law? Because if he says the Abrahamic covenant is eternal and he says um, the Mosaic covenant is temporary, are we still under the Mosaic law? And the answer is yes and no. Let me explain it to you really quickly. This will clarify things in your mind. The Mosaic law can be divided into three categories. You had civil laws. These were governmental laws that governed them as a nation, you know, capital punishment, uh, all the laws that ruled Israel. You had ceremonial laws, offering of animals, dietary laws, and then you had moral laws. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't murder, all these things. So all the Old Testament laws are broken into these three categories. Now, in the New Testament, the civil laws are no longer applicable to us today, literally. 
There are principles that we learn from these civil laws in the Old Testament and the Mosaic law, but we're not under them anymore. You say, what do you mean we're not under them? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever stoned an adulterer? Anybody that commits adultery in this church, are we going to pick up stones and stone them? What's the answer? No. So these laws are not applicable to us today. Now, there are principles that we can get from this, but they're not applicable. How about the ceremonial laws? Do we offer up animal sacrifices? No. Why? Because these ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, or Jesus did away with them. For example, Jesus said we're not under dietary laws anymore. You could eat shrimp, you could eat shellfish, you could eat any type of animal you want to eat. We're not under those dietary laws. Now, the moral laws of the Old Testament, they do carry over into the New Testament. They're still applicable. And here's why. Because they're rooted in God's character. God's character doesn't change, and they're repeated in the New Testament. So, does the Mosaic law apply to us today? If Paul says it's temporary and Abrahamic covenant is eternal, listen, we're not under the Mosaic law. We're under the moral laws still. God still expects us today not to cheat, lie, and steal. Why? Because that's God's character and it's repeated in the New Testament. But the civil laws that God gave to Israel, the ceremonial laws, we're not under those laws anymore. Why? They've been done away with in the New Testament. And so what is Paul arguing here? He's saying faith alone is based on God's eternal promise. Well, let me give you a fifth principle he gives here as to why we're saved by faith alone and not by keeping the law. He says faith alone is superior. Now, this is an interesting argument. You've probably read this before. When I was in Bible college, I read this and I said to myself, what is Paul talking about here? Let me read to you verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, God gave the Mosaic law temporarily to expose people's sins and also to guide Israel to be different from the nations. And notice what he says about the Mosaic law. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 20, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. You say, what is he talking about here? Again, let me give you the diagram to help explain what he's saying. He's saying, look, when God gave Moses the law, the law was conditional and it had mediators. If you read the Old Testament, when God gave the Ten Commandments and the other laws, particularly the Ten Commandments, he gave them first through angels you could read that in Acts 7 and also back in the book of Deuteronomy. And then it was given from the angels to Moses, and then Moses gave it to the people. You see, the Mosaic Covenant was given by mediators, and it was a conditional. Here's why. Because God said this. God says, here's my end of the bargain, here's your end of the bargain, and there's mediators in the middle. And so God said to Israel... I will bless you, and I will give you life if you keep my commandments. If you don't, I will punish you. And so God gave terms, and the people had terms to obey, and there were mediators in the middle. You see, there were conditions from both parties. The Mosaic Covenant was conditional, and it had mediators. Now watch the Abrahamic Covenant. Next slide. The Abrahamic Covenant didn't have mediators. 
When God gave the promise to Abraham, God gave it to Abraham directly because he says God is one. You see, whenever you have a covenant between two parties, you have mediators, okay? And it's between parties. Both parties have stipulations to fulfill. But when God came to Abraham, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a descendant named Isaac. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a multitude of people. And ultimately, from your loins, Abraham, is going to come an individual called the seed who's going to be the Messiah, and he's going to bless the whole world. Wow, what a promise. You know what? When God made that promise to Abraham, there were no conditions, unlike the Mosaic Covenant. God would fulfill his end of the bargain. He initiated it with Abraham. There was no mediators. God made it to him directly. How do I know that? Well, look at this picture. Anybody know what this is? Those are dead animals cut in half. You say, why are you showing me dead animals on Sunday morning? Well, just to drive PETA crazy. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) By the way, you know what PETA stands for? People eating tasty animals. Sorry. I just, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Please excise that when we air it on the television. So <laughs> John's going to be your assistant pastor. <laughs> These are animals. Now, here's what God did. God, when he made the covenant with Abraham, he said, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take animals. I want you to cut them in half. Okay, now this was common in that day when they'd make a treaty. When two parties would make a treaty, they would cut animals in half, and here's what they would do. They would both walk through the animals together as they made an agreement. And what they were saying is, we both are obligated to keep our agreement. And if any of us violates the covenant, may what happened to those animals happen to me. See, that was the way they made covenants in that day. Well, When God made this Abrahamic covenant to Abraham, you know what God did? After Abraham cut the animals up, he gave Abraham a divine anesthetic. He went to sleep. And you know what God did? He walked through the animals himself. And you know what God was saying to Abraham? I initiated the covenant with you, and I myself am going to fulfill the covenant. You see, there was no mediators. God made it directly with Abraham, and God would fulfill the covenant. Why? Because it was unconditional. All Abraham had to do was believe it by faith, and God would bless him. On the other hand, the Mosaic covenant, uh uh-uh, two parties, conditions. God said, if you do this, here's what I'll do, and there were mediators in between. And so here's his argument. Faith alone is superior. Why? Because it's unconditional and there are no mediators. On the other hand, the Mosaic Covenant is inferior because it was temporary, it was conditional, and it was based on agreement between two parties. You see, that's his argument that you and I are saved by faith alone. It's a very well-crafted, logical argument, but that's the argument that he gives. Well, there's one other argument this morning that he gives. And that is this, faith alone makes us sons and daughters of God. Isn't this great? Faith alone makes us sons and daughters of God. Now, let me explain to you the background here of what Paul is going to be talking about so you'll understand the text. If you look at this diagram, in ancient times, 
the move from childhood to adulthood was very, very definitive. Not in our culture. They, they had a ceremony when you move from being a child to being moved to an adult. Now, in the Hispanic culture, am I right, Letty? In the Hispanic culture, there is a distinct move from being a child to an adult. You would have a ceremony. In ancient times, here were the ceremonies that they would have. The Romans called it toga virilis. And usually between the age of 14 to 17, that was determined by the father, you would become, move from being a child to an adult. In fact, that's the background of 1 Corinthians 13, 11. What does Paul say? When I was a child, I used to think like a child. I used to act like a child. He said, but when I became an adult, I put away what? Childish things. You see the background there. You know what they would do? They would take their dolls. The boys would take their toys and they would throw them away. That was a symbolic ceremony. In the Greek culture, it was called apoteria, age 18. In our culture today, is it 18 or 21? It depends, right? In our culture, it seems to be 21. I mean, that's the legal drinking age, but it seems in our culture that 18 is the age. Now, in Jewish culture, you move from being a child to an adult. They called it bar mitzvah. That was at age 12. You became a son of the law. You were no longer a son of your parents in the sense that you were accountable to them. You are now accountable to God. That's why it was called son of the law. Now, what Paul is going to do in this section here is he's going to talk about this custom of toga virilis and also bar mitzvah. He's going to mention this in terms of God adopting us into his family. Go to the next slide. Here's what he says before we read the passage. When you were a child in that culture... You were under tutors, paidogogos. They basically were disciplinarians. They were slaves. They would take you to school. They would teach you manners. They would discipline you, and they would train you. You were in bondage, in a sense. It was like you were a slave. You were no different than a slave. Even though you were an heir, you didn't get your inheritance, and it was temporary. Then, at the time set by the father, you would become a what? A son or a daughter. You were no longer under tutors anymore. You were set free. You received your inheritance, and it was permanent. That's the background now of what I'm going to read here. Now watch it. It'll make more sense. Verse 23. But before faith came, before the death and resurrection of Christ, that's what he means by faith, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. In other words, while we were children, spiritually speaking, we were under the law and we were imprisoned by the law. Verse 24, therefore, the law has become our tutor, paidogogos. It's kind of like a nanny today, a living nanny who disciplines the children. He says, the law was like a tutor. It was like a nanny. It disciplined us. It oversaw us. We were in bondage to it. Why? Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now, verse 25, that faith has come, we are no longer under a what? Tutor. We're no longer under that nanny. And then he says this in verse 26, here it is, for you are all sons of God 
through faith in Christ Jesus. So look at this diagram. Prior to salvation, he's using this custom to talk about being under the law and being under Christ. Prior to salvation, the Bible says, we were like children under the law and we were what? Condemned. At the time set by the Father, which would be God the Father, you and I were saved. Now we are sons and daughters in Christ and we're free and we're no longer under the law. Why is Paul using this argument? He's trying to debunk or expose the Judaizers. He's trying to say, guys, we're not under the law anymore. We're now fully adopted sons and daughters of God. We're no longer children. Why? Because the Father set the time when Jesus Christ would come, He would die, and the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we go from being a child under the law to a fully mature adult, a son and daughter of God. That's the argument that he's using, because notice what he says in verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, you become one with Christ. There is neither, verse 28, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ. In other words, you become one with Christ when you become a son and daughter of God, when you're adopted into God's family, you become one with Christ and you become one with every other Christian. In fact, notice this picture here. When the Bible says you become one with Christ, it says you and I are clothed in filthy rags prior to salvation, but when we accept Christ, you know what God does? He takes his perfect righteousness and he imputes it to our account so that we are clothed in Christ. When God sees me, who does he see? He sees Jesus Christ. That's why I'm accepted by God on the basis of Christ's performance, not my performance. He accepts me on the basis of his righteousness, not my righteousness. And listen, I'm one with every other Christian. There's neither Jew, Greek, male, female. Now listen carefully. This is not saying that there aren't distinctions in the church. You're still female and I'm still male. Whatever uh, sex you are, if you are Russian in terms of your ethnicity, that doesn't change when you become a Christian. I'm Middle Eastern. That's not going to change because I have faith in Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this. In the body of Christ... There's no distinction spiritually. We're all equal before God because we're clothed in Jesus Christ. And then he says this as we end. Chapter 4. He's, he's on the analogy again of moving from being a child to being a spiritual adult or a son and daughter. Now I say, as long as the heir is a what? Say it out loud. See? He doesn't defer at all, from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. You see, when you're a child under that paedagos, that nanny, you're no different than a slave, even though you're an heir of all your father's estate. You're no different than a slave. Why? Because you are under that nanny. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Bar Mitzvah, Apaturia, Toga Virilius. So also, look at the analogy he applies. While we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We were held under pagan religion. We were held under the Old Testament law. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive, say it out loud, adoption as sons. There it is. And look what he says here. Because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Papa, Daddy, term of intimacy. By the way, when Jesus was in the garden, he was sweating drops of blood. He said, Papa, let this what? Cup pass from me. When he died on the cross, he didn't say, Papa. He said, my God, my God, why have you what? You see the term of intimacy. And you know what happens, he's saying here? When you move from being a child to a fully mature son and daughter adopted into God's family, you have all the rights and privileges as a fully mature son and daughter. We've been adopted in the family of God, and we have the Spirit of God living on the inside of us to where we have intimacy with God. We can tell God how we feel. We can tell God when we're struggling. Listen, this week, when you pray, open all your prayers with this, Daddy. Use the word Daddy. Watch how it changes the complexion of your prayers. Say, Daddy. And then he ends with this. And by the way, we could spend a whole sermon just on this section here. Therefore, verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a what? And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, once you became a fully mature son, you were an heir. You got all that God has. The Bible says we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I was reading about a kid back in 2013 in Germany. His name was Sergei. Sergei was like any other college student. He was going to school, trying to work his way through school, and he lived off of a monthly income of $240 a month. One day, he hears this. Person opens the door. He says, hey, how can I help you? He says, uh, I'm a lawyer, and um, I'm here to represent your uncle. He said, uh, your uncle left you an inheritance. He said, but wait a minute, I've only met my uncle once, and it was at a picnic. He said, your uncle has no heirs to his estate. And he said, because he was so impressed with you as a little boy, your uncle has left you $945 million. His whole life changed. This is a true story. You see, he was an heir to his uncle's estate. And that's what happens when you and I accept Jesus Christ. And so what is Paul's arguments here that we're saved by faith alone? He says faith alone is based on God's eternal promise. Faith alone is superior to the Mosaic covenant. And faith alone makes us sons and daughters of God. Do you know Jesus Christ this morning? Have you repented? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ to save you? If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to become a son and daughter of God. And listen, you and I are going to receive an inheritance when we get to heaven. That's a motivation for us to invest our life now in following him. It's a motivation. Each one what? This year. That's the motivation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, for your truth, even though, Lord, this was highly technical, we thank you, nevertheless, it is your word. And I just pray, Father, that we would rest on your promise, not only that we're saved by faith alone, but, Father, your promises to us 
that you will provide all of our needs. You will guide us. You will direct us. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and grace to us. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.